0: Thank you for listening to the Share in Church podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at shareinchurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message.
1: I love what's happening today. Uh, we have a gift today. Uh, Chris McGowan, who's been a member of our church for a year or so, maybe a little over a year, he teaches our everyday theology class. So a quick plug for that. Uh, Sunday mornings during our small group hour at 1130, Chris leads our everyday theology class. It's eight different topics uh, that root us in the basics of Christian faith. I think a lot of times we dive right into the deep end and we haven't learned how to swim yet. And so Chris uh, leads that class for us. He teaches uh, that for us every Sunday morning. So if you're looking for something like that, you can jump in at any point. It's cyclical, so just jump in, finish your eight weeks, and, uh, and I believe in it and what God is doing in that ministry. What I love, another thing about our church is that we just have people who feel called to love Jesus and who love this church. Again, we're not flashy, um, we're not fancy. Uh, you know that about us, but Chris has a gift of teaching. Uh, the Lord has given that gift to him. Chris, like every single one of us in this room, is not a perfect man. He does not stand up here. Same as me, we don't stand up here as examples of what to do in your life. We do the best we can with what we have. But I know this about Chris. He loves his wife and he loves his kids and he loves his church and he loves his savior. And God's given him the gift of teaching. So he's gonna teach for us this morning. I wanna give you permission this morning to like him more than you like me. I think in some churches, you're not allowed to do that. You're allowed. I mean, love this man. Love the gift that God's given him. Love the way that he teaches. Um, He's got a gift of humor and the kind of humor that you won't get until you get home when you're eating lunch. And then you're gonna spit your drink out because of something that was so funny that Chris said three hours ago. That's gonna happen. I guarantee that will happen today. Um, uh, But enjoy that. Please feel free. Enjoy this. I believe that God has wired each of us differently. And there are people in the room today that will be compelled and challenged by the way that Chris has been wired to communicate God's word. And you're allowed to love that. You're allowed to. Um, Doesn't change my role, but you're allowed to love, you're allowed to love that with him. You're allowed to love when Greg teaches and when Daryl teaches. You're allowed to love when Cody eventually teaches when he gets over his nerves. You're allowed (laughs) You're allowed, <laughs> you're allowed uh, to do that. So I just I want to invite you into that. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me pray over Chris and, and the message this morning, and then we're going to just partake in this feast. God, we thank you for today. I'm so thankful to have a friend like Chris who has loved me at unlovable times, who has um, walked with me, who has walked with our family. God, who loves this church, who loves you and loves his wife and his family. God, I pray for him that through the Holy Spirit now that you would begin uh, or continue to work in his heart and then through his mouth that the words that come out of his mouth that they may be flesh but they would become spirit and they would penetrate through bone and marrow into our very souls today. May your word uh, be glorified. May you be lifted high today. And through the power of the Spirit may we be transformed simply by opening your word. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.
0: Good morning. I got to get this out of the way because I know some of you are really worried about it. So I have a letter I want to read. It's from Daryl Sanders and the elders. It says, I, Daryl Sanders, together with the elders of Sharon Church in Ola, Georgia, in faithful consideration that his favorite color is plaid, do explicitly and with great empathy give Chris McGowan permission to speak from the platform in a shirt that is not black. Well, I needed to get that out of the way first. <laughs> I wanna tell you about the time I almost died. That's a great transition, right? Uh, so the summer, it was the summer of 1996. I was living in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, uh, serving as the chaplain of Dollywood in Pigeon Forge. I'll let that settle in for a second. Uh, and during my time in Gatlinburg, I developed a great love for hiking. And there was many, many days that you, if you couldn't find me at home, I would be wandering the trails of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And one afternoon, a friend of mine and I were planning to hike to the observation tower at Klingman's Dome. Has anybody ever done this? Okay. Klingman's uh, Dome is, uh, the highest point in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It sits right at the border of uh, North Carolina and Tennessee, right on Highway 441. Uh, At 6,643 feet, uh, it is the highest point in Tennessee. It's the third highest point east of the Mississippi River. Uh, And we started our hike about 7 p.m. So this is again, this was July. Uh, So starting to get dusk, right? It stays daylight for a pretty, pretty long time. It started to get dusk and at that time of day, uh, shadows start to play with your eyes a little bit. Um, and do you ever get that sense when somebody's watching you and you have that sort of tingle on the back of your neck, like your spider sense, right? Well, we, got, we started getting this feeling and I kept looking up to my right and then I saw some movement and we stopped and I said, be still for a second and right about that time these two adorable black bear cubs about six to seven months old tumbled out onto the trail and if you've ever seen any TV show ever about bears and cubs what do you know? Mama's not too far away And my immediate fear was somehow we were between the cubs and the mom. And we're probably from here to the exit sign from these cubs. They're downhill from us. If you've ever hiked this trail, it's a 13% grade. So it's steep. Well, she alleviated that fear pretty quickly. We weren't between the cubs and the mom. The mom lumbered out onto the trail behind, behind the cubs. And though not nearly as large as their male counterparts, female black bears who are putting on weight for the winter can get upwards of 250, 300 pounds. And they're fast. Usain Bolt, fastest man on the planet, tops out at around 28, 29 miles per hour. Your average fat, lazy black bear? 35. And they've got cleats. <laughs> non retractable claws. So, in that moment, I remembered the best advice I'd ever received about bear encounters. You know, after all, living in Gatlinburg, uh, black bears were a normal thing. Lots of people had all kinds of advice about what to do with a potential bear encounter. Back away slowly, don't turn your back on them, Uh, separate yourself from any food source, Uh, all good advice. But the best advice I had ever been told was this, is yeah, bears are fast, but you don't have to be faster than the bear you just have to be faster than everybody else. So I did what everybody else would have done. I pushed my friend down and ran up the hill. I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. We, we, we slowly backed up the trail and she started walking towards us. So we backed up a little more and she started walking a little faster. How many, how many deer hunters do we have in the room? So you know what it's like when, the, when, the, when a buck will blow at you and frighten everything else in the, you know, in the vicinity away? Bears will do that too. When you're deer hunting and it blows at you, that's just kind of frustrating because your hunt's over at that point, pack it up. But when a black bear blows at you, it's a little different. It's not as so much frustrating as it is terrifying. Um, So we backed up faster and she walked faster. And then she started running and we did too, uphill. (laughs) I don't know that she ever intended to uh, put claws to flesh, but we didn't stop to consider it. We ran as hard as fast as we could uphill until She was no longer behind us. Um, But in those moments where you could hear those claws on the paved trail behind you, we thought that was it. In those brief moments, I didn't think too much. I just reacted. At the time, I was barely thinking. But later, after the incident had passed, this thought occurred to me. I have never been more out of place than I was at that moment. Yes, the park service had put a trail there with a cool mountain overlook and they had placed a parking lot at the bottom and they had put trash cans along the way and they had put up even little educational signs along the path telling you about what you were seeing. But it was still the bear's home, not mine. I was out of place. The bear was right where she was supposed to be. I was in her mind a threat. I was behind enemy lines. I was on her turf. So as we dive into 1 Peter 4 this morning, continuing the study of what it means to be exiles, to be behind enemy lines, I wanna draw some parallels and learn some things from my experience that day with the bear on the trail. So if you would turn in your Bibles, I've got got, uh, these on the screen as well. We're going to be reading the first 11 verses of 1 Peter 4. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Several things come out of that passage And we're just gonna walk through these this morning. First, there's a call to action. Second, there is a specific way in which that call to action should take shape. Third, there's a timeline for when that action should happen. And lastly, there's a call for who we should take that action with. So let's back up, verse one. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, The first thing we see in that passage is the call to action. When that mama bear walked out onto the trail, there was a call to action. There was a threat and it was time to do something. Peter is making a similar appeal here in chapter four. We know from last week and the weeks prior that the Christians Peter is writing to are facing all sorts of persecution. Peter is comparing the similar circumstances of these followers uh, that that these followers were facing to that of Jesus. And since Christ also suffered, Peter says, we are to arm ourselves. The Greek phrase, arm yourselves, is similar to a phrase Jeremy used a few weeks ago when he was preaching out of chapter one, verse 13, uh, where we saw the phrase, preparing your minds for action. You remember this? and Jeremy showed that ridiculous picture of the guy tying his robe up, remember that? To gird up or to prepare was what that phrase meant. This phrase is similar, but Peter seems to be ramping up the intensity a little bit here in chapter four. The phrase arm yourselves in the Greek is the word haplizo, and it is a distinctly military term. It literally means to equip or to make ready. It is related to the word hoplon or weapons as it is translated. It's used also six different times in the New Testament. It refers to an instrument designed to prepare for military engagement. Hoplite, the term hoplite. This identifies a heavily armed infantry soldier of ancient Greece. It's derived from the word hoplon. You might remember these famous soldiers from the ancient historical battle of Marathon, a watershed moment in the Greco-Persian Wars of 490 BC where the Athenians defeated the Persian invaders. It's where we get our modern day word marathon from. When the Greeks defeated the Persians, the story is that the Greek soldier ran uh, from the site of the battle to Athens. 26 miles to tell the news of the victory. And again, 10 years later at the Battle of Thermopylae, where the infamous 300 Spartans of King Leonidas stood in defense of Sparta against the newly strengthened army of Xerxes. Using the word hoplitzo, Peter is clearly drawing from history and certainly painting a picture here. That we as Christians should be prepared for a cushy life reminiscent of a garden party with various types of charcuterie and buttery Chardonnays? No. Maybe a life of glamour and popularity where everyone loves us and wants to follow us on Instagram. Nope. No, Peter is clearly painting a picture that we as Christians are to be prepared for war. Why? Because this is not our home. We are exiles, we are living behind enemy lines in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the way of Jesus. Should this surprise us? Not if we've been paying attention. It doesn't take much to turn on the news, some examples of negative stereotyping in the media legal action against Christian-owned businesses under the banner of equality laws, Christian parents being hindered from raising their kids according to their faith. But there are other examples that include acts of violence, aggression, and vandalism towards Christians and Christian sites. It's far worse in other parts of the world, but it's not getting better here. This is nothing new. This is exactly why Peter was challenging his first century brothers and sisters to arm themselves. The life of a disciple of Jesus is a difficult one. It requires commitment. I know I'm showing my age here, but there was a song in the 70s called I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. If you're interested, you can look it up on YouTube. I think David Wilkerson probably has it on 8-Track if you wanted to talk to him after the service. (laughs) The words of this once popular song ring true in the lives of a Christian. Some people would say that, uh, especially in our lives as Christians, Jesus never promised us a rose garden. He did, however, say that we are to die to ourselves daily, that in this life we would face trouble Jesus is particularly clear on the subject throughout scripture. Oddly, in fact, it seems that Jesus sometimes is trying to get people not to follow him. How many times in life do people convince us to join a class, take a job, go on a trip, make an investment without telling us the whole cost? They conveniently leave out the catch or tell us only what we need to know at the time. Now, granted, part part of that's our fault for not checking things out on our own before jumping in with both feet. But that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do, to jump in with both feet, leave nothing in question, total commitment. Yet Jesus, unlike the salesman of the modern world, is incredibly upfront about the cost of following him. In this life, you will face trouble. Things will not always be easy. Jesus lays all the cards out on the table. He leaves no doubt in our mind as to where the road less traveled will lead. He does this, I believe, for two reasons. First, he hides nothing from us because he wants people who are totally and completely his. He wants to know that we've counted the cost and know the level of commitment that he's calling us to. Secondly, I believe Jesus is so honest because he knows nothing can compare to life with him. His way is best, and he knows it. Why would he hold anything back? The cost of discipleship is high, but what we gain in return is priceless. In the spring of 1945, a 30-something Lutheran pastor awaited execution in a Nazi concentration camp. He had spent two years imprisoned, but during that time he had published letters on spiritual wisdom, delivered sermons on Sundays, and shared the gospel with his prison mates and even his prison guards. That he was focused on others' redemption in the midst of his own challenges is a stirring reminder of the cost of discipleship. And on April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged at Flossenburg Concentration Camp for his involvement in a small Protestant resistance movement and conspiracy to defeat Hitler and his regime. Even so, Bonhoeffer's legacy endures. Today, he is considered one of the most esteemed Protestant theologians to come out of the 20th century. One of Bonhoeffer's most famous works, The Cost of Discipleship, is an enduring source of wisdom on the demands of Christian discipleship. Salvation is free, Bonhoeffer said, but discipleship will cost you your life. Arm yourselves, Peter says, because this is not our home. We are exiles behind enemy lines and we must be prepared for a fight. So how do we fight? The first thing we saw in this text is a call to action. The second thing we see is the definition of what that call to action should look like. When that bear walked out and I realized there was a threat, my actions weren't the best. In fact, they were completely wrong. I turned my back on the bear and I ran. As you read 1 Peter, we might expect a certain course of action from this former fisherman and occasional pugilist. But Peter throws a massive curveball here. Based on who we knew Peter to be, we might've expected Peter to say, take up arms, to form a secret militia, to storm the palace. I just envisioned Peter as Billy Crystal and the Princess Bride. Have fun storming the castle. But Peter instead says to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as that of Christ. He tells us to have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, verses five through eight, says your attitude, or another translation your says mind, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. What is the mind of Christ? It's the mindset that leads us to serve, to put others before ourselves, to obey the leading of Jesus, the type of mindset that allows us to persevere under suffering as Jesus did. Philippians 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What is the mind of Christ? It's the mindset that challenges us to get our thoughts off of the things that cause division and resentment and contempt and instead focus our thoughts on things that please God. It's the mindset that challenges us to get our thoughts off of the things that usher in pride and jealousy and lust and anger and instead focus our thoughts on the things that foster a life led by the Spirit. Peter reminds us that even in his suffering, Jesus was looking far beyond the pain of the events of the moment. The mind of Christ was set on the redemption of all humanity in a reunion with his Father. He was thinking differently. And if we're going to stand firm in this war against our hearts, we must think differently as well. We must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. John Eldridge once wrote, the story of your life is the story of the long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could become and fears it. We are at war. And oftentimes it's against an enemy we cannot see. And if we are to stand a chance, we must arm ourselves. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Peter 1.13 tells us to prepare your minds for action, to be sober-minded and set our hope fully on the grace of Of Christ. Romans 8 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For you see, this is a spiritual battle and it will be waged with the weapons of the spirit. It is my contention that many of us this morning feel ill equipped for such a fight because we don't fully grasp our identity. So I want to read a a passage out of 1 Corinthians to see if I can encourage you with something that I think we have to understand or our fear is we will be beaten into submission by the enemies around us. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Here's where it gets interesting. Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and the other, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Does the phrase mere men imply that we are more than that? And if so, what are we? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This word new in this word is the Greek word kainos. It means that you are literally a new kind of creation. Unprecedented. It's not the same thing as working in the yard, getting all dirty and sweaty and finishing up, going in, taking a shower, putting on fresh clean clothes and going, man, I feel like a new person. That's not what this word means. The word Paul uses here literally means never seen before. Completely new, unheard of. Early in the book of Genesis, mankind did not exist yet. But scripture says that God breathed into man a never before seen creation. Today, when we choose to follow Jesus, God breathes into us his Holy Spirit, and a new type of creation is born. You are no longer a mere human. Think of the implications of that that passage. Because of this new life, we are meant to keep in step with the Spirit. We are meant to live by the Spirit and we are meant to fight by the Spirit. If we are to arm ourselves and fight by the Spirit, we must do so with the mind of Christ. In verse seven, we see the third truth we need to take hold of, that there is a timeline established for when this action should happen. When that bear decided to chase us up the trail, I had a very keen awareness of what Peter points out here in verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. It's kind of like the feeling Jeremy gets when he compulsively has to repack the dishwasher after Meredith has already packed the dishwasher. The end of all things is near. Our time is short. So what should our response to that reality be? Jesus says in Luke uh, chapter 12, verses 35 through 36, he says, stay dressed for action. Same phrase as 1 Peter 1.13, by the way. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Time is short. Jesus is coming. Peter had no idea how much time he had left. He surely felt the heat of Nero's political climate. If the Lord did not return soon to take him home, the Romans would certainly make his time left on earth short. Murderous men with poisonous plans are closing in around him and already the sentence of execution has been passed. Soon brutal hands will drag Peter away to be crucified. So as he contemplates the looming possibilities and thinks again how he might encourage his friends, he grips his quill a little tighter and praying that they will understand the gravity and magnitude of his words, he writes what is both a warning and an encouragement. The end of all things is near. To follow Christ is to live with expectation, anticipating the day Christ pulls back the veil of eternity and returns for his own. The world we see and touch will not endure forever. We are made for greater things, eternal things. And so even as the sands of time pours out from beneath our feet, we plant ourselves on the solid ground of Christ and on the only three things that are eternal. God, God's word, and the souls of men and women. Peter urges us to watch and pray only by living in anticipation of Christ's return will we be able to stand against our enemies material or immaterial. Yes, Satan's defeat is coming too, but he will not go quietly. Revelation 12, verse 12 says, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you and he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. We watch and pray so that we will not be tangled up in his schemes and caught unprepared for Christ's coming. The sin and temptation that Peter describes in the first five verses of chapter four are like a strong ocean current attempting to pull us off of our moorings. How can we hope to make a stand? How can our anchor hold? Well, finally, beginning in verse eight, we see the answer to these questions. When we turned up the trail and made the decision, which at the time in our minds was to run for our lives, we decided to do it together. Similarly, in these last fleeting moments of human history, the one most important thing that Peter charges us to do is embrace these times together. If our anchor is going to hold, we're going to have to do it as a community. Above all, Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly or deeply. The Greek expression in this verse is the phrase that means to love at full stretch. It's not a passive kind of love. Love at full stretch is active is purposeful, is determined. It requires work, growth, and vulnerability, and it will not always be comfortable. For me, this is tough. And my guess is that it's tough for a lot of us, men especially, because I don't like vulnerability, and I like comfortable, and I tend to get lazy, and passive, and I hate conflict. But this kind of love that Peter describes demands that we work through conflict, live with differences, and find ways to love people who aren't always like us. Love doesn't just express concern, it develops true affection and demonstrates that love to others. What does love look like? We see this love, Peter shows us in verses nine through 11. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. These verses are reminiscent of um, what have been called the biblical one another's where over and over again, the Bible teaches And challenges, it admonishes us to live out our faith in practical ways. Offer hospitality to one another, joyfully, not complaining, and invite others into our homes and lives. Use your gifts to serve others, stewarding God's grace rather than hoarding it for yourself. If you speak, do so as if speaking the very words of God. If you serve, do it with the strength God provides. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11, Paul says, Encourage one another and build one another up. The word encourage, Paul uses there, is the word parakaleo. Literally, it means to come alongside you for the purpose of strengthening and comforting. You're thinking, that sounds really familiar. It's very closely related to another word that you may be familiar with. It's the word parakletos. It's the word that Jesus uses in John 14 to describe the Holy Spirit as comforter and counselor. Literally, parakletos refers to one that would come alongside you and serve as your advocate. Parakletos was a legal term that Paul hijacked for 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Parakaleo, parakletos. It's two slightly different words carrying extremely similar meaning. So what? You went all Greek on me there. I got lost. It's near the end of the service. I stopped paying attention. What do you mean? Paul is saying that it is our duty, our calling, our job, in fact, as believers to join with the Holy Spirit of God to come alongside our fellow believers, to build one another up, to comfort one another, to encourage one another. Love in this sense is not some innocuous thing. It's not some philosophical ideal. It looks like something. It's tangible. It looks like friends gathered around a table who still leave enough room to invite others in. It looks like the mom who runs frantically through her day just trying to keep up but still finds time at the end of the day to visit the widow next door. Or like the small group who isn't bothered by the chain-smoking, tattoo-covered, leather-wearing biker who shows up to Bible study. They just pull up another chair and hand him a Bible. It looks like caring enough to work through conflicts instead of booting each other out of our lives, laying, laying aside some of our own preferences and putting others' needs in front of our own. Peter wrote this letter to a persecuted and alienated church. In a hostile world, they needed to create a safe harbor. As they looked for Christ's return, they needed to dedicate themselves to loving well, building relationships that would sustain the inevitable persecutions and suffering that would come their way. And so, As we seek to follow Jesus in an increasingly hostile world, we must follow the admonitions of Peter. Like the churches to which Peter first wrote, we live in a world that is not always friendly to our faith. We too face a host of internal and external pressures. We must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We must understand that time is short And we must lock arms and do it together. We need to love one another well, creating our own safe harbor in a dangerous world. I want to close with Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read a few verses, starting in verse 19. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for faithful disciples like Peter who stood in the face of unimaginable persecution, who stood faithful. a man who had made many, many mistakes. It would have been easy for him to walk away. But he knew what he had in Jesus. So God, I pray that this church would stand strong, that we would arm ourselves with a different way of thinking, that we would arm ourselves with your thoughts, that we would understand that we're not promised tomorrow. And in light of the difficulties and the enemies we face daily, may we lock arms and do it together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. And God, may you strengthen us by your spirit. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.